Father, you have amazing compassion for us and for everyone of your wayward, lost race of humans. But through us, Lord, you're bringing birth a pilgrim people, a people willing to follow you, willing to go on pilgrimage, to go on a journey with you. And you call us to be a blessing for all people in the world. We pray for grace to take your generous gift given to us and to step with courage on this path to share it with the world. Lord, that on this path, you would transform us from barren wildernesses into fruitful gardens. That we can radiantly and confidently shine your life to the world around us. So continue to sustain us in and through Jesus as we journey with you. In his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we started off with the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, our passage last week, we followed Jesus into the wilderness. And our last passage on Easter Sunday will be John chapter 20, in which we see the resurrection of Jesus in a garden. And so as we journey with Jesus toward Easter, what we see happening is the wilderness blossoms into a garden because of his death and resurrection, and he's calling us to participate, to journey with him so that we die to our old selves and are reborn to our new selves. See, the desert and the wilderness, uh, the wilderness and the garden are not just geographical descriptions, but they are metaphors for the human themselves so that we are going through this transformation and bearing the fruits of the spirit in our life. We are becoming a new creation. And so here we are in John 3, and for the next four weeks, we're going to meet four people who have encounters with Jesus. We're going to see a religious ruler in chapter 3 tonight. We're going to see a Samaritan woman in chapter 4 next week. We're going to see a man born blind in chapter 9 of John. We're going to see a dead man in John chapter 11. And in these instances, Jesus is meeting individuals. And in each of these individuals, we're going to hear a piece of ourselves in them. And as Jesus is inviting them to journey with him, he's inviting us. Such a variety of people. We have the religious ruler, the official orthodoxy, and then we have in the very next chapter, we're going to have the hated Samaritan, or the hated heresy, the sinner. We're going to have a blind man and then a dead man. And in all of this, we learn this message that Jesus approaches every single person. Everyone is called to journey with him, whether a religious ruler or a Samaritan sinner. And so as we started the journey last week, Jesus going into the wilderness, because it's there that human beings have fallen. Adam and Eve started in the garden, 
and by the rebellion, they transformed or deformed the garden into wilderness. And we see God there meeting Israel and bringing them through the wilderness to bring them to their promised garden, the promised land. But Israel is unable to transform in their journey, and they bring the wilderness into the garden and just trample the fruits of the garden so that Israel falls. The exile happens. They're oppressed by uh, empire after empire till we meet Jesus, who now comes and the first thing he does after he's baptized and publicly pronounced as God's son, he's here with the mission, he then before he preaches the kingdom of heaven's at hand, before he starts healing people, before he gives his sermon on the mount preaching sermon, he goes into the wilderness. And it seems to be this interruption, like he's coming out of the water and God's like, this is my guy and he's going to go and change the world. And before we see him actually doing that, there's this huge interlude where Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And we scratch our heads and say, now why did God do that? We remember that it's because first, Jesus meets us where we fail. Humanity was left shepherdless in the wilderness, so Jesus goes to the wilderness because from there he's going to take us to the garden. And also, Jesus knows what he's to do on the earth, but how is he going to do it? That's the question that must be solved Because the mission might be crystal clear and very important, but the way we do that mission, the methods we use to accomplish it, are equally as important. Because bad methods can ruin a good mission. The end does not always justify the means. And so Jesus is in the wilderness praying and fasting for how am I to bring the good news of the kingdom to the people of the world? And guess who comes to him with alternative ideas? The devil. And there he's tested for 40 days, and he confronts every temptation of how he can bring the good news of God to the world. And he has to look at these and say, no, but that's not God's way. No, that's not God's way. No, that's not God's way. So we learn, how is Jesus going to lead us from wilderness to garden? We learn, no, he's not going to use human need to leverage power. He's not going to turn every stone into bread and make everybody full and happy and then take over the world that way. He's not going to use religion as the devil tempted him to jump off the temple and call upon God to rescue him so that he looks dazzling and spectacular and that the world says, this is amazing. He's not going to use God and use religion in order to elevate himself and take over the world. Then the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all of these are yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I worship God alone. And we learn that Jesus is not going to use political power or the kingdoms of the world or the methods of the emperors and the Caesars of the world to take over the world. And any time that we use power in a wrongful way or even the sword against people, we find out that that's the devil's method, which is Satan worship. And Jesus says, I'm not worshiping you. I'm not going that route. And then he emerges out of the wilderness and he's ready to give the kingdom to people because he's now resisted the alternative methods. Which Remember, Satan never comes to us in a red onesie (laughs) with a forked tail, horns, and smelling of smoke on his breath and says, hi, ready to play? It's pretty easy to say, yeah, I know what you're about. No way. The devil comes to us 
in the form of good ideas. And so Jesus had to pursue and pray about the Father's way and resisted the devil's ways. But with that said and done, in the wilderness, we found out how Jesus will not lead us into the garden. We still haven't found out how he will lead us into the garden. And so we come to John chapter 3 and eavesdrop on a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And here we overhear the methods that Jesus has settled on for bringing the kingdom of God, for transforming the wilderness to a garden. And this is what we overhear in John 3 verse 16. Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is how Jesus is going to lead us. Love. This is the method he settled on for his mission. And what Nicodemus hears and what we hear through him is that when we choose to journey with Jesus, he leads our journey with love. Jesus leads our journey with love He calls us in love. He walks with us in love. And he leads us to love. Love is the beginning and the ending. Love is the journey itself. And that Jesus is going to lead us with that love. He does not, as verse 17 told us, this journey is not going to be full of criticism and condemnation as we go. We think sometimes, I'm going to step out for God, but what if I mess up? He's going to tell me I'm a failure. I'm going to ruin everything. He does not call us to journey with him so he can condemn us and criticize us. He calls us so that he can hold us and carry us. Yes, it will be challenging. And yes, there will be change, but it will only be done with the tendermost love that he can give. He did not send his son to condemn us but that he can save, that he can transform, that he can lead us in love. That's good news. That as we're encouraging one another to follow Jesus in this season, he's leading us with love. But love is hard. You guys ever notice how often we prefer not to live by love, how hard it is to be led by love. We prefer law over love. We prefer relationship. Excuse me, we prefer rules over relationship. We want a job to do, not a journey to take. We want tasks to accomplish, not a trail to follow. We want projects, not paths. In short, we like the work of the wilderness, not the grace of the garden. Because law is always easier than love. And I understand it. Because law is predictable. 
You know what to expect with laws. Laws are certain. They're written in black and white. And to an extent, they're controllable. You can manipulate them at times to get what you want or to kind of, you know, just stretch the line a little bit. Laws give us security. They give us definition, limitation. They give us orientation so that we know where we're at, what to expect, where the boundaries are. We like laws because we like to know that we know that we know. But love? Love is uncertain. It's a living, breathing, dynamic relationship. There are emotions. There are highs and lows. Love refuses to be defined. It refuses, especially God's love, refuses to be limited. And we're scared because we don't know where the bounds of it are. Where is this love going to take me? It's going to take me to the depths of a relationship I'm completely scared of. Human beings have hid themselves from the great limitless love of God forever and ever behind shame, behind guilt, behind unworthiness. And we are terrified of where limitless love can take us to have such an unconditional experience of embrace, acceptance, and belonging disorients us because we're so used to defining ourselves by our appearance, our affluence, our achievements that we don't know what to do when Jesus says, exactly as you are as a human being, without accomplishing anything, you cannot be more loved. That is a journey. We don't know where love will take us. But we know it will get us there. And sometimes it's hard to let go of the certainty and security and say, All right, I trust your love. Well, Nicodemus is exactly there. We see him in verse 1 of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And sometimes that's where we are. We're at that place of uncertainty. We're at that place of questions. Night is that place of darkness, of doubt, of disorientation. And that's where Nicodemus is. He meets Jesus in this place. And sometimes when Jesus is there and he's pulling us with his love, it can feel more like night than like daytime. Because we're like, I'm not sure what's going on. We know that he's calling us to something more. And we like just the security of where we've always been. And Nicodemus, yes, there's probably reasons of he's trying to hide out from the religious leaders. He's talking to who? I'm going to go undercover. But the fact that he wants to go undercover by night says that there's something going on here that's a little bit confused and needs some direction. And so he comes to Jesus. And listen, in our nights, in our doubts, in our uncertainties, in our darkness, we have questions And so Nicodemus is going to launch three questions on Jesus. Hey, help lead me here, because I am not sure that I'm experiencing the fullness, the fruitfulness of the garden quite yet. And yet he's a religious leader, the teacher of Israel. So this is a very interesting conversation. So here we go, Nicodemus. Ask your first question. He says in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we 
know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? No? He doesn't actually ask a question, but when you follow the thread of the rest of the conversation, you get the sense that uncertainty is leaking out of this so-called confident statement. And here's how we know. We're set up with the fact that he's a Pharisee. And he sees Jesus. You're doing these signs, these miracles. That means God must be with you. Should be pretty clear. But, and this is what Nicodemus can't get over. Jesus is unpredictable. He's uncontrollable. He's untamable. Even at times a little irreligious. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which is this party in Israel, religious party. It was part of what the Sanhedrin was. The Sanhedrin was the religious rulers of Israel. Seventy of them, they were appointed uh, to these positions. And they're basically, it was made up of two parties. Does it sound like Congress at all? Um, Pharisees and Sadducees. And like Republicans and Democrats, they had two different ideas about how God operated. And they didn't always get along. In fact, there's a great episode where the Apostle Paul's brought in front of them, and he's in trouble, and he, knowing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their beliefs, he kind of throws in this theological debate, and he gets them fighting, and he's able to escape. (laughs) It's a really brilliant moment by Paul. Um, The Sanhedrin does not always get along. And so Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the religious rulers. He is one of the top 70 people in the entire nation. He's a Pharisee. So the Pharisee party was established about 200 years before this conversation as a reaction to paganism and Gentile influence which seeped into Israel. The Pharisees gathered together to say, no, we have to purify Israel. No more of this Gentile pagan influence. We are going to make the law very strict and we're going to make sure people observe it by first observing it for ourselves and then putting pressure on others to observe it as well. Because the problem, Pharisees thought, the reason that it, God is not bringing his kingdom to earth yet is because we have not been able to keep the law. We're letting pagan influence run the day. So the Pharisees believed that by keeping the law and keeping Israel pure, by building up a wall between them and the nations through the law, that that will get God to bring the kingdom. And so Nicodemus, emphasizing aspects of the law, knows what God, he he knows, right? He knows how God's going to bring the kingdom. He knows the right method. And yet there's Jesus with a totally different way of looking at bringing God's kingdom garden to earth. Jesus is not elevating the law. In ways he almost seems to question it, challenge it, disdain it. Jesus is eating with sinners. Uh, The Pharisees would not do that. Jesus is forgiving the unclean. The Pharisees would not do that. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees make sure Jesus knows we would not do that over and over. By eating with sinners and forgiving their sins, Jesus is essentially replacing and undermining the temple institution. 
Everyone in Israel knew where he got forgiveness of sins. At the temple. Everyone knew that sinners ate with God at the temple. And yet here's Jesus acting like God, eating with sinners and forgiving their sins. As if the temple's not a thing anymore. I'm doing all this. And so you can understand what the Pharisees, especially Nicodemus, looks at Jesus and he's like, you're doing all these amazing things. Surely God is with you. But can somebody from God really be doing these irreligious things? And so he's hung up. He's not sure about Jesus. It's almost as if Nicodemus is looking at him and saying, listen, Jesus, you aren't really with our program, so we're not really sure if you're from God or not. And you know what Jesus answers Nicodemus? He basically says, Nicodemus, it's not about me joining your program. It's about you journeying with me. Maybe you are the one that has the program flipped the wrong way. So verse 3, with that in mind, this is what he says in verse 3 to Nicodemus in response. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus would have answered that. Unless you keep the law and keep paganism away from you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, the reason you're having a hard time fitting me into your puzzle picture of the world is because you haven't been born again. You're trying to fit me into your world, and I'm trying to ask you to come into my world. Born again, Jesus is not inviting Nicodemus to say the sinner's prayer. We often associate born again with sinner's prayer or an altar call. And then we lead them in the sinner's prayer and boom, that's it, you're born again. Now, we can say the sinner's prayer and we can have an altar call and we can meet Jesus, but that does not guarantee that I am being reborn. The phrase in the Greek can actually read either way, born again or born from above. And so the idea is that when you're born again, the thinking, God's thinking, takes over our thinking so that we unlearn everything and relearn everything. We become disoriented to become reoriented around God's purposes. That's the idea of being born again, born from above. We see things differently. We're flipped over. And that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you're trying to ask who I am, but you're looking at everything the wrong way. You need to have new eyes in order to see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just the climax of human ego and getting everything right. The kingdom of God is what happens when human beings are transformed from wildernesses to gardens. You must be born from above. Well, Nicodemus, this leads him to his second question in verse 4. Nicodemus said to Jesus, okay, so he hears him, born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How is this possible, Jesus? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, which is the same Greek word for wind. So it's just a play on words there. So Nicodemus is asking, wait, wait, Jesus, is it, how is it possible that I can be reborn, born from above, born again when I'm old? Now, some people say that what's happening here is that Nicodemus is taking Jesus literally. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that Nicodemus is thinking, uh, that's awkward. First, my mother's dead. Second, how... Um, so, in other words, they're, saying they're taking Jesus, say, born again physically, rather than born from above spiritually. I don't buy that. I don't, I don't think Nicodemus, who has a ton of respect for Jesus, obviously he's seeking Jesus out. Nicodemus, one of the greatest scholars in Israel, seeking out Jesus and having respect for him. I don't think Nicodemus is hearing Jesus that childishly. He's giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He knows Jesus is speaking metaphorically. I don't think he's confused about how it's possible to like do that weird biological rebirth thing. He's realizing, look, Jesus, I'm an old man. I have years of study, years of teaching. I have a great reputation, and I'm among some of the highest colleagues. My colleagues are amongst the highest in Israel. I have a status to uphold. How is it that after so many years of learning and study that I can suddenly completely change? Do any of you feel like that? How can I, who am of this age, possibly go through a rebirthing, a changing of my mind, a renewing of my being? How is that possible? That's what Nicodemus is asking. Nicodemus is not confused. He's uncomfortable. He's not sure that this is possible for him. If you guys have been reading along with the weekly readings, you might remember Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, says, go. Go to the land that I will show you. God calls Abram on an adventure. Calls him to journey with him. And Abram goes. And in Genesis 12, you see this. Just so you don't miss the point that in Genesis, Abram's going is a journey. In nine short verses, there are nine journey verbs. Let me read them to you. So as a response, it says, Abram went. And then he says he departed. It says that he set out. He set out to go. Then he came to. Then he passed through. Then he moved. Then he journeyed. And then he was still going. In nine verses, you hear those nine verbs. And all of them describe Abram moving and going and passing. It's a journey that Abraham's on. And then you read... And Abram was 75 years old when he set out. I don't know, Nicodemus. Can an old man be reborn? Is it ever too late? Jesus is calling us to a journey to love. 
And it might be scary and disorienting. We might have to relearn a lot. But that's what it means to be born from above. Are you willing to put aside your Pharisee worldview and embrace the new one that Jesus is offering? So then this leads him to the third question in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So, okay. I wasn't sure if you're from God or not. It's because I was looking at you wrong. Thank you for clearing that up. I need to be reborn. Is it possible to be reborn after I have established such a lifestyle? It is possible. Okay. Lastly, how? It is really hard at my age, Nicodemus is saying. It's really hard. I've given my life to this cause to just suddenly leave it. Like Abraham, just to leave everything behind. Nicodemus has to leave his status. He has to leave his colleagues. He has to be the daring heretic to go against what everyone else in Israel is teaching, to see Jesus as something different, even to a degree irreligious, because he's questioning the authorities and the religious authorities of Israel. Nicodemus realizes this is an impossible leap for me to take, Jesus. How can I do this? How is this possible? And that's where Jesus launches the most important verses that we know in Scripture. And where he brings the concept of love. Nicodemus, it is not possible under your way of teaching the law to Israel. The law can't change you in that way. But I am going to lead you on this journey with love. So this is how Jesus shows it to him. He tells him his own story. Jesus is the example of the first journey led by love. And now he's saying, Nicodemus, I want to take you there too. So look with me at verse 9. We just read, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answers, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Never mind that. At least you're asking me, right? (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen But you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Your Jesus now is launching the story for us. Hey, Nicodemus, I descended from heaven. You want to talk about it being hard for you to depart on this journey? I left heaven to come to this wilderness. Then in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, I've gone from heaven to this wilderness. And you're going to see very shortly that in this wilderness, I am going to die. So that whoever believes in me will have eternal life now. 
faithful, committed, good listeners. <laughs> Do you remember our series through the Gospel of John not that long ago? We looked at this word, eternal life. In Greek, it's one word. It's Zoe. And the reason we bring up the Greek word for this, Zoe, is because eternal life in our mind speaks of the length of the life. It goes on forever and ever and ever. But the length of one's life does not really mean much to me if it's not a good life, if it's a miserable life. And what Zoe actually communicates is a quality and a depth of life as well. So that eternal life should maybe more thoroughly be translated, but it's just a little more wording, uh, is that it should read deep, lasting life. That eternal life, Zoe life, is the kind of life that humans and God had in the Garden of Eden. This fullness and this length, this depth and this breadth. And so that what Zoe is communicating is not just our thought, eternal life, oh, it's life after death, Zoe life is communicating also life before death. So that as we believe in Jesus, he's filling us with the life we lost when we lost the garden in the wilderness now so that we can be fruitful and have the characters and qualities of God today. So that we, the wilderness, are becoming gardens. And to, just to illustrate this whole thing, John's gospel is magnificent in the way it talks about Zoe life. As the life from the garden, John not only has the whole story of Jesus leading us to the garden of resurrection, but he starts the story off with Echoing Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 starts, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And he tells us about how the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, wilderness living amongst us. And then the word went forth. And of course, he did tons of miracles. But John limits his record to seven miracles because he wants to parallel the seven creation days. So he shows Jesus doing seven creative acts, healing the wilderness and making it into a garden step by step so that when we get to the garden at the end of John's gospel, we realize this is Zoe life. This is the life, the depth and the breadth we were meant to always live with God. We just had to follow Jesus into the new creation. Nicodemus, I left heaven and I am plowing through this wilderness where I will die to bring humanity to the Zoe garden of God. That's what I'm doing. And I'm showing you how we're going to get through this wilderness. It's not through the methods the devil used in Matthew 4. It's through the God method, the giving of his son, the giving of his life, the dying for humanity. This is the path revealed to us so that we don't have to hesitatively say, I don't know about him. We can go forward and say, you know what? Is it possible for an old man to be reborn? How can I do this? Nicodemus, Jesus says, just look at what I'm going to do. And if you don't think that this kind of love will lead you through, then you just don't want to go. It's possible because my love will lead you on the journey. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then he launches into, for, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's a journey. Go, son. 
that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have garden life, Zoe life, eternal life. For God did, not ascend, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus needs to learn, as a teacher of Moses' law, Moses could only get you so far. Moses died in the wilderness. But Jesus can get him through the wilderness. Yes, the law is certain, and love is uncertain. But Nicodemus, it's one thing you don't have to be uncertain about when it comes to the love of God. That is that he will never condemn you. It will only lead you onward and upward if you follow. Nicodemus is going through a dramatic change as he's listening to Jesus. His world as he knew it is coming unglued. He may not feel reborn yet, but the process has begun Nicodemus is challenged to look at the face of love and it's going to reveal itself magnificently through the cross. And he's he's face to face with this and he realizes there's something here, but I don't know if I'm ready. And we leave the scene and we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. Nothing is happening. Jesus tells him about his love and then... Nicodemus just, we don't know what happens to him until later. He comes up a little bit later. But thinking about what Nicodemus is going through in this conversation causes us to need to hear this. That the journey, when we journey with Jesus, the journey disorients us, right? Nicodemus is like, whoa, whoa, wait. I've got question after question. He's in night mode. He does not know what's going on. The journey is aimed to disorient us until we are able to reorient our lives around love instead of law. The journey disorients us until we can reorient our lives around love. The journey disorients us until we can reorient our lives around the path of God rather than just working on projects so we can reorient ourselves around the trail of God and follow him rather than just tasks so that we can reorient ourselves around relationship and not just rules so that we can finally reorient ourselves around the grace of the garden and let its fruits just bloom in our lives rather than the works of the wilderness and beating ourselves to death like slaves in Egypt. The journey is difficult because like Nicodemus, holy cow, Jesus, do I have to relearn everything? Yes, you might have to relearn everything. Unlearning is so hard. It's why we just want to stay with the impersonal relationship of law and rules, regulations, tasks, projects, because We're secure with those. But man, to take one step into the journey, suddenly all of that's gone. We have to understand that the disorientation does not last forever 
The journey disorients us until we learn to reorient ourselves around what God created us to be in relationship with him, following the love he's leading us with. We are so conditioned to hide and run in shame. Like Adam and Eve, when they were caught in their sin, it says they covered themselves up with fig leaves and then hid in the trees. God had to call them out. And even when he did, they weren't like, oh, thank you for calling us and loving us. They started making excuses. Well, we're not really that bad. The woman, the serpent, blah, 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 excuses, blame. And ever since, we're doing the same. And Nicodemus has to elevate himself in the ranks of Israel. He has to be the best teacher. He has to give the law and be perfect in the law himself and, and, and trying to get everyone to recognize him. I made it to the Sanhedrin. I'm awesome. Just so that we can feel a little bit better about the shame that says we're unworthy. And that's when we need to hear the call to journeying with Jesus when he says, put that aside I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. I came to transform. I came to lead because God so loved everyone that I came to lead us through the wilderness and into the garden. Therefore, we're told twice that whoever believes will have Zoe life. Whoever believes. This is not just a, all right, I know God exists, I believe. Believing is choosing to journey with Jesus. Believing is relearning everything we thought we knew. Believing is reorienting ourselves around everything that we didn't before. Believing is what happens when we are reborn. Believing is the call to journey with Jesus, to trust that he so loved the world that he gave his son and will not condemn us. That's believing. That's what Nicodemus is asked to do. However, brothers and sisters, that kind of belief that is entering into relationship, like we've been saying, is so much harder than just the whole religion thing. And we may not be reborn overnight. Nicodemus sure wasn't. He came to Jesus by night, he left, and it was still night. But as the story in John's gospel unfolds, we slowly see the sun starting to come up in Nicodemus's life. So that by chapter 7, verse 50, he's there in front of the people he is supposed to have a good status before, his colleagues. He defends Jesus before them while they're accusing him. Jesus guy's from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. Listen to his slang, that weird accent he has, that Galilean thing. He's not even educated. Nobody should follow him. Everybody who follows him is a curse. Jesus says, or Nicodemus stands up and says, uh, doesn't our law say not to like judge someone without a trial? You guys are like just judging him. And like, we haven't even like really listened to him. And like, are you also a disciple? Go and see no one comes from Galilee. Nicodemus stands up there, the first of the whole religious system. He says, wait, this guy might be worth listening to. You think this conversation hasn't been working its way into his life? We're not born overnight. Relearning and reorienting ourselves with being reborn, it's all a process because this is the journey. And then we see him one more time in chapter 19. 
at the end, says that Nicodemus is part of the burial of Jesus. 19 verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, so remember that guy who was really confused and said it's impossible to be reborn? Remember that guy? He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's the ESV's translation. Some scholars say it's up to 100 pounds in weight. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And guess where they laid the body? Next verse tells us, in a garden. Nicodemus, by the end of the gospel, is coming now to Jesus. Jesus said, you will see how much I love the world and how I'm going to lead the world from wilderness to garden by my love. And then Nicodemus saw it on the cross, and now Nicodemus is fully reborn. He says, wow, everything I thought the world was orienting around, I am now reorienting it around the love of God. And so much so that he brings the amount of spices that you would use for a dead king. This is a royal public announcement on Nicodemus' part. Nicodemus finally sees the light. The night has turned to dawn. He has been reborn. Brothers and sisters, the point of showing you that is so that we can understand that rebirth is a process. And we must not be hard on ourselves when the wilderness seems hard on us. Love is a journey, and it's calling us to go with Jesus to the cross so that we can there, like Nicodemus, for once and for all, see the love of God revealed to us so that we can continue with him all the way. The worship team's going to come up, and tonight might be that night where... You're thinking, it's dark tonight. There's doubt. I have questions. I'm uncertain. I like my little safe, secure Christianity, but I also see that it's not really working. I'm not really changing. The people around me aren't changing. You might also be in that place where you're like, I'm older now. And I don't know that there's much more to life. I've kind of already done everything. And maybe it's not done. Maybe there's yet another journey Jesus is wanting to join you in, call you to. We're not going to see something overnight, like you're going to wake up feeling younger, hipper. Your mouth is now in control. Or whatever it is. But you might wake up with a little more trust that the love of God is leading us in this journey. And I'm going to take that next step, step by step by step.